This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, so I want to talk uh, about miracles tonight. Uh, do you believe in miracles? I was mentioning before the title comes uh, from a great line uh, from the, uh, the 1980 Olympic hockey team, uh, Al Michaels, I think. That was one of the last things he said is, is they were about to polish off uh, the Soviet Union in, in what seemed like a miraculous victory. Great movie called Miracle. You should watch if you haven't seen it. Um, but I want to ask the question whether a belief in miracles uh, can be reasonable. Um, I don't know if you recognize uh, uh, this man. This is uh, Richard Dawkins, um, who is, is fairly well known. He's, he's uh, sort of a, an apologist for atheism. He has a lot of uh, evangelical zeal uh, about spreading the atheistic uh, message. And uh, here's some things he has to say uh, about miracles, maybe to kind of uh, whet our appetite a little bit here. So um, Dawkins says, the virgin birth, uh, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, the manifestations of Mary and the saints around the Catholic world, even the Old Testament miracles all are freely used for religious propaganda, and very effective they are with an audience of unsophisticates and children. And then he says, uh, any belief in miracles is flat contradictory, not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. Okay. So if you would answer that initial question, the, the affirmative, do you believe in miracles, if you, if you say, you know, yes, right. Dawkins is, is saying uh, that you're uh, a child, uh, you're unsophisticated, and uh, you, you're flatly contradicting science, and certainly uh, the spirit of science. Uh, it's not just Dawkins, though, surprisingly, who, and people like him who hold views of this sort. You, you, you found this actually uh, um, expressed by, by certain 20th century theologians. Might, might seem strange, but, but here's one, uh, John Macquarie, uh, the, tra the traditional conception of miracle is irreconcilable with our modern understanding of both science and history. And then uh, more famous than, than Macquarie, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, uh, says it's impossible, that's whose picture this is, this photo, it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless, the radio, right? and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. So uh, how, how could you be a theologian, a Christian theologian, uh, but but think that you had to dis dispense with the New Testament world of spirit and miracles. You didn't have any uh, miracles. Well, you you engage in a project of demythologizing, right? So you take all the miracles and say, well, none of these miracles are, are to be taken in any kind of literal sense at all, but rather they point to some sort of, uh, of spiritual meaning or, or philosophical meaning or meaning about psychological meaning or something along those lines. Um, uh, well, there, there are recent you know, surveys, I consider recent, you know, uh, a, a survey from the Pew Research uh, Center um, as recent as 2010, saying that 80% of Americans believe in miracles. These are people who don't just use you know, radios, but they use cell phones, right? Um, um, a little bit older study, but still fairly recent, 74% uh, of doctors surveyed in this study believe in miracles. And 55% of, of doctors surveyed said that they have seen treatment results that they consider to be miraculous. Now, it's a little hard to know from these surveys precisely what the people answering the survey mean by miracle, and if they mean the same thing by miracle that, that Bultmann means, right? Um, but it's, it is a little bit embarrassing to throw out all the miracles of Christianity on grounds we, that nobody could possibly believe in these things, right? Anybody who makes use of modern medicine 
and makes use of radios and modern technology could possibly believe in these things. And then it turns out that 80% of Americans and even the doctors and people with more scientific background uh, 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 believe in miracles. But what I want to um, what I want to talk uh, about and my plan for the talk, I want to I want to begin talking a little bit about just what is a miracle. Um, what we, what should we take a miracle to be? And then I want to consider, and this will be the bulk of the talk, two types of objections to belief in miracles. Uh, one type of objection to belief in miracles is the objection that miracles are just impossible. Right? Of course, if they're impossible, then it couldn't really be reasonable to believe in them. A second type of objection is that it can never be reasonable to believe in miracles, even if they are possible. It still can be reasonable to believe that one has actually occurred. Right? So we want to look at these two uh, types of objections. But first, what, what is a miracle? Right? Picture here of, of St. Thomas Aquinas. And we'll, we'll begin by looking at a couple of things he has to say when, uh, when defining miracle or discussing miracle. Thomas says, those things which God does outside those causes we know are called miracles. Those things which God does outside those causes we know. What kind of causes do we know? Well, we might call them natural causes. We're familiar with the natural causes of the, of the natural things we encounter in the world. A miracle is something that God does outside those causes. He says in another place, those things must properly be called miraculous which are done by divine power apart from the order generally followed in things. And again, I think the order generally followed in things, he's referring to here to the order of natural causes, those causes which we, we, we know. And I think adding the, the, the notion here that this is the order in which things generally follow, the natural order of things. This is the customary order, the typical order uh, that we find. Is, is effects following natural causes in the, in the way we would, we would think that they uh, normally would, uh, or they typically do. Um, another, uh, from a contemporary philosopher, a, a more recent definition of miracle that I think has a lot in common with, with uh, St. Thomas's, he says a miracle may be defined as an unusual and religiously significant event which reveals and furthers God's purposes is beyond the power of physical nature to produce and is caused by an agent who transcends physical nature. He doesn't say that the agent has to be God necessarily. Maybe it could be some other sort of agent that transcends physical nature. Uh, I think Aquinas would agree you know, that, that an, an angel might be able to perform a miracle uh, or even a, a human being, but it would be by divine power. There would be some special divine power at work there. Um, so what more can we say, sort of building on that idea of what a miracle is, is, is something that God does outside the ordinary powers of natural causes? Well, I think the first thing that I'd, I'd like to, to say is that of course, we're familiar with the workings of natural causes, but that all the workings of natural causes are also the workings of God. So when it rains, which I'm expecting it might here before long, right? That rain is, is the working of God, right? God is a cause of, of the rain. Now you might say, well, don't be stupid, right? Haven't you ever watched the Weather Channel? Right? Don't you know? There, there are scientists that can tell you what the causes, meteorologists, right, who can tell you what the causes of, of rain are. Right? Well, Aquinas would, and, and others who, who would uh, affirm this first bullet point wouldn't deny that, right? Um, to say that, that, that God is a cause, is a, is a source of the rain, it makes sense to thank God for the rain and so forth, is not to deny that there aren't also natural causes there because God is the source of the natural causes, right? So whenever a natural cause is operating, right? Whenever fire brings about heat and water, let's say, God is also operating as well as, as a cause, right? Um, and it, just a helpful point to, I think, have in, in the background, 
Now we can go on from that and say a bit more about natural causes and, and miracles. Um, so we, we can think about explanations, what would count as a, a natural explanation. Well, you can say an event has a natural explanation if and only if it has natural cause or natural causes. So an event has a natural explanation if and only if that event has natural causes. Well, miracles are, as we, we've seen, are brought about by divine power outside the order of natural causes. So miracles are brought about by divine power, but not by natural causes. And it follows from that that miracles don't have natural explanations. A miracle is, is an event, something that happens that doesn't have a natural explanation because its cause is not a natural cause, but it's caused by divine power. Well, if we, if we understand that much, right, then we'll see further that our ability to recognize that an event is miraculous is going to depend on our ability to recognize it as something that is not explicable, or at least probably not, as far as we can tell, right? Not explicable in terms of natural causes. Words, to have reason to think that an event is miraculous is to have reason to think that it's not explicable in terms of natural causes, because as we know, a miracle is something that isn't brought about by natural causes, but just by divine power. And so to recognize a miracle, to recognize an event as miraculous, we must know what natural causes produce. We must have familiarity with natural causes, or else we wouldn't be able to recognize an event as something that doesn't seem to have a natural explanation. Are you with me? Okay. All right. Well, what does it take to, to know about natural causes, to, to learn about natural causes, to be familiar with what natural causes produce? Well, it would seem that, that to know what natural causes produce, uh, that's gonna be possible only if the vast majority of events are in fact explicable in terms of natural causes. Natural causes that produce effects in a regular, predictable fashion. So to know the natural cause, to know what something is, is miraculous, we're gonna to have to know enough about natural causes to recognize the miraculous event is, is not having a natural cause. But to know natural causes is going to require that the vast majority of the times, the events which happen, right, occur in regular, predictable fashion, right, is produced by the, the cause with which we're most familiar, the natural cause. And, and one thing that's interesting that, that follows from that is that we couldn't recognize, we couldn't even recognize miraculous events as miraculous unless miracles were the exception, right? Were rare, were the exception and not the rule, right? Because you can only recognize miracles as miracles against the backdrop of of knowledge of natural causes, and that requires that most of the time things have natural causes and natural explanations. And so it's going to just be necessary to recognizing, to be in a position to recognize the miraculous, that uh, miracles be rare. And both of the definitions from Aquinas and from Larmer, who we saw on the previous page, uh, point to the, the, the rarity of, of miracles. All right. So, talked about what miracles are and what would be required to recognize them. And so now I want to look at this first type of objection uh, to the rationality of belief in miracles. The idea that miracles are impossible. And uh, I want to, want to talk about three reasons that have been given or might be given for thinking that miracles are just flat out impossible. The first reason is... Uh, that God doesn't exist. And I, and I think if you're, if you're following, you'll see that if God doesn't exist, then miracles are impossible really by definition, right? We define the miracle as some, some event that is brought about not by natural causes, but by divine power, by God. So if God doesn't exist, 
right? Then by definition, there couldn't be any miracles. Now, I think there are good reasons uh, to think that God does exist, but that's in a, a different talk, right? You could bring in another TI speaker to give, give arguments or I could do it or somebody else to come in and, and, and uh, make a case for the existence of God. So I'm going to have to just, you just have to trust me, right? That there's some good reasons to think that God exists, uh, that that first reason to think that miracles are impossible uh, uh, can be answered. Um, but uh, it's clear enough that if God doesn't exist, then by definition, miracles are impossible. What about these second two uh, reasons that have been given for thinking that, that miracles are impossible? The second one is uh, the idea that God couldn't perform miracles. God couldn't perform miracles. And the third one is not saying that God couldn't perform them necessarily, but that God wouldn't perform them, wouldn't perform miracles. So let's look at these. So here's a, a passage from Arthur uh, Peacock, uh, who writes on science and religion and theology issues, um, a reason for thinking that God couldn't perform miracles. Um, our current perception of the world as a closed nexus, a closed nexus of events, renders the idea of God intervening in the world to rupture its God-given regularities incoherent. So the thought seems to be something like this, or here, here's the best uh, I can make of it as, as an argument for the impossibility of miracles, right? Um, the, and, and, it, and it seems here to, to think, by the way, that the world has these regularities because God gives it to them, right? So it's not, it's not part of the objection here that God doesn't exist, right? But the thought seems to be that in creating a, a, a natural world where things operate in regular and predictable ways, uh, there's a sense in which God uh, walls off any intervention in that system, right? It's almost like there's a giant force field around the system of, of natural causes uh, such that God, if he was going to create such a world, couldn't really... Uh, do anything to, to, apart from what was going on within that system and what the natural laws were producing. You see that? Yeah, that seems to be the idea. I, I'm not sure there's a whole lot that can be said for, for the, the idea, right? And I think there's a, a passage uh, from, from St. Thomas that, that speaks to it, um, that I, it's worth uh, reading at length. Now, Thomas is going to use this term here, uh, secondary cause, okay? And what he means by secondary cause, for our purposes, could just, we could just insert natural cause. Maybe I'll even do that when I read, okay? A secondary cause is a creaturely cause, it's a naturally cause, over and distinct from the divine cause. Okay, so he says, if we consider the order of things depending on any secondary cause, any natural cause, God can do something outside such order. For he is not subject to the order of natural causes. But on the contrary, this order is subject to him as proceeding from him, not only by a natural, not, not by a natural necessity, but by the choice of his own will, for he could have created another order of things. Wherefore, God can do something outside this order created by him when he chooses. For instance, by producing the effects of natural causes without them, or by producing certain effects to which secondary causes do not extend. So the first part of this passage, I think, is, is the most sort of direct response uh, to, uh, to Peacock's uh, uh, suggestion here, or at least the suggestion that he's, he's considering, right? Um, the idea that, that in creating a world, God is, some, is somehow uh, putting some sort of wall or force field around it, such that he could not do anything within the world outside the order of natural causes, gets things backward, right? God is the creator of this world. The order of natural causes, then, is subject to God, God is not subject to or limited by the order of natural causes that he 
creates, right? Uh, he created this order of natural causes. They answer to him, not vice versa, right? And he created it freely, not by any natural necessity, but out of a free choice of will. As, as Thomas says, God could have created, uh, well, God could have refrained from creating anything at all, or he could have created a, a different natural order than the one he's created, right? So the order of secondary cause and natural cause is a subject to him, not the other way around. And so certainly he has the, the power to uh, bring about effects outside the order of natural causes. And he mentions a couple of different ways God can do this. One is God could bring about an effect of a sort that natural causes bring about, but he could do it without the natural cause, right? So I don't know. Uh, imagine we have a, a, a pan of water here, right? A natural cause could, like fire, could bring about heat in the water, couldn't it? Right? But but God, God can bring about heat in the water without any fire involved, right? Um, whatever a natural cause can bring about, he can bring about as well without that natural cause. Or he could bring about some effect that, that no natural cause which he's created could bring about, would have the power to do. Um, maybe no natural cause has the power to bring it about that uh, a dead man uh, rises from the dead, but but God can bring that about, right? Um, uh, and so, um, not sure there's a reason to take seriously this idea that miracles are impossible because God couldn't perform them. What about the idea that God wouldn't perform miracles. There's some who have thought that, that God wouldn't perform them, and, and, and that's a reason to think that they're impossible. Um, Voltaire uh, expresses a view of this sort. There's a nice photo of, or, or something of Voltaire. He says, it's impossible that a being infinitely wise could have made laws of nature to violate them. He could not derange the machine here he's thinking of the world as just one big giant mechanism or machine. He could not derange the machine, but <coughs> except with a view of making it work better. Right? The only reason he would do anything would be to make it work better. But it's evident that God, all wise and omnipotent, originally made this immense machine, the universe, as good and as perfect as he was able. Or take uh, a more recent author, uh, Paul Davies, or Davies, I'm not sure how he pronounces it. He says, I love the idea of a God who interrupts nature, who intervenes at certain stages and manipulates things. It would be a very poor sort of God who created a universe that wasn't right and then tinkered with it at later stages. So why do these authors think that God wouldn't perform any miracles, they seem to be thinking something like this, like that the only motive God would have, the only reason God would have to perform a miracle would be to, to fix some mistake made in the original creation. But does it make any sense to say that God made a mistake in the original creation? Right? No. And therefore, there just, it just wouldn't be the sort of thing that God would do. There would be no reason to do it. Right? Apart from the question of whether God could, God wouldn't, right? There could be no motive for it. You see that? Only, re only motive could be to fix some mistake God made in the original universe that he made, and God can't make such mistakes, right? Well, again, I'm not so sure about, uh, about uh, uh, this is very strong reason to think that God wouldn't perform miracles, because I think there are lots of other reasons uh, God might per perform them, right? And I'm going to go off uh, here, script a little bit. I had made some changes. Uh, some of these things I'll, I'll focus on. One, God might perform a miracle just to, as a way of a sign of, of love or special favor, right? That would be a reason. Uh, not up here, but it would be a reason God might perform a miracle. Not to fix some mistake, but just as a sign of, of love or special favor. Um, God might perform a miracle as a sign of his existence um, to, to strengthen uh, belief in him. I mean, again, a, a, if a miracle is, is the sort of thing, uh, an event that doesn't have a natural explanation, 
and we can recognize that an event has occurred that doesn't have a natural explanation, that gets us, you know, our minds moving in the direction of, this, of, a, of a supernatural power like God who could, right, bring about such an event, right? And so miracles could be uh, uh, performed by God in part uh, to uh, support belief in him, support uh, faith in him. Uh, another reason, and the is the first one I have listed here, uh, that God might perform miracles, would perform miracles, uh, would be as a sign to authenticate or to confirm a teaching or doctrine is divinely revealed. And you know when I, when I say divine revelation, you know what I'm talking about? Right? Divine revelation is the idea that, that God has communicated to us, or, or might communicate to us, right, certain truths about, about himself or about his, his plan, right, uh, for us and for the universe. Um, there might be things, truths we can know about God simply by reasoning well. I think that there are. I think we can know God exists. I think we can know that certain things are false of God and certain other things are true and can be affirmed of God just on the basis of natural reason. But there are other truths that I, I believe in only because I believe God has told us so through a divine revelation, through a divine communication. Now, any divine revelation is going to involve some means of the, of, of Revelation. There's going to have to be some prophet. There's going to have to be some teacher who conveys this revelation. There's going to have to be some holy book, right? Um, but how do we recognize? How could we recognize uh, such a teaching as revealed by God, as coming from God? Well, one way we might be able to recognize it is in connection with miracles that are, are performed by the teacher of that, uh, of that uh, message. Uh, William Paley, um, 18th century Christian apologist, uh, gestures in this direction. He says, in, in what way, he asks, can a divine revelation be made but by miracles? How, how do we ever know that a certain teaching of some prophet, let's say, uh, was to be accepted as divine revelation if it wasn't accompanied by some sort of miracle, a show of, of, of power of a, of a sort that only God could demonstrate, right? A show of power that can only be done by God is a way of, of confirming that this teaching is from God. And you find uh, similar sorts of points uh, in, in St. Thomas. Um, so you'll say, it says, God enables a man to work miracles for two reasons. First, and principally, he says, in confirmation of the doctrine that that man teaches. Why well, might, by divine power, he enable a, a, a human being to perform a miracle as a way of confirming the doctrine that that uh, man is teaching. So that when a man does works that God alone can do, we may believe that what he says is from God, is revealed by God. He applies this to the teachings of, of Christ. Christ worked miracles in order to confirm his doctrine and in order to show forth his divine power. It's a confirmation that what Jesus teaches is divinely revealed. One confirmation of that is that uh, Jesus performs acts, miracles, that only the divine power could perform. And so those miracles are a kind of, of seal, as it were, of, of, of approval, authenticating the teaching of Christ as revealed, okay? So the, the objection was, right, um, among the reasons one might think it's impossible that God perform miracles is just that God wouldn't do so, because the only motive he'd have to do it would be to fix mistakes in his original creation, and he can't make any mistakes. Well, we've now talked about various other reasons uh, that God might perform miracles that have nothing to do with fixing mistakes. All right. Um, so I want to now turn to the other type uh, of 
reason that some have given for thinking that uh, it, it could never be reasonable to believe in miracles. And, and, and here I think these, these are arguments to the effect that it, it could never be reasonable to believe in miracles, even if they were possible. Like, maybe they're possible. Maybe I can't, I can't know for sure that they're impossible, but you still are never going to be in a situation where it would be reasonable to believe that a miracle actually happened, right? That's the kind of objection I want to turn to now. And I want to look at at least one and maybe a couple of objections. Both of these are associated with the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. Um, but they're, they are really, I think, good representations of the sort of objections that a lot of people, even nowadays, who think you could never reasonably believe in a miracle, uh, why they might think that. Okay. The first of these is what I want to call the conflict argument, or the conflict with the natural law argument. Do people have a copy of the handout? Okay, eventually we'll refer you to that. All right, and then we'll see, maybe we'll talk about improbable testimony argument too, uh, if we have uh, time. So here's Hume. Uh, giving a reason to think you know, we could never really be justified in believing in a miracle. Okay? He says, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And as firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. So there, there are really three points, important points, packed in here that when you add them together uh, constitute an argument that it could never be reasonable to believe in miracles. One is the thought that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. The second is the thought that we have a massive amount of evidence for the laws of nature. Like we've got lots and lots of good reason to, to believe in the laws of nature. Um, you find this in the point where it says laws of nature as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, right? Now, you might quibble with him about maybe he's exaggerating a little bit the, the evidence for the laws of nature, but it's really, really strong, I think, okay? So a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, but we have about as strong of evidence as you can imagine for belief in the laws of nature, and therefore, the evidence we have for believing in the laws of nature is evidence against the occurrence of anything that would violate the law of nature. But that's what a miracle is, something that violates the laws of nature. And so we've got strong evidence against it in the evidence we have for the laws of nature. You see that? There's a conflict, in other words, the idea between, between the law of nature and the miracle. It's like you can't, you can't reasonably believe both but we've got massive evidence for believing in the law of nature, and so we can't, in a way, we've got massive evidence against belief in the miracle, okay? The conflict argument, I'm calling it. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna talk through this argument step by step, and you can follow along with me um, if you want on the, the handout, but I'm, I'm gonna just go line by line. I tried to set this out because I think it's, I think it's an interesting argument. I think this is, a, this is a more interesting argument to my mind than the arguments for the impossibility of miracles. I think those arguments are pretty weak, actually, and worth addressing, but I think this is a much more interesting and potentially challenging argument. And, uh, and so I want to talk through it carefully and think about, you know, if, if, if you're going to try, wanted to respond to this argument, where you would respond? Where do you think this argument goes wrong? So the first premise, a miracle is, is a violation of laws of nature, right? Well, if, if one, if a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, what does that mean? And it means a miracle's having happened would show that a law of nature is false. If a miracle is a violation of the law of nature, then a miracle's having happened would show that a law of nature is false. But if a miracle's having happened would show that a law of nature is false, then we can't reasonably believe 
both the miracle and the law of nature, can we? Well, if we can't reasonably believe both the miracle and the law of nature, then between them, we should believe whichever has the stronger evidence and disbelieve whichever has the weaker evidence. We can't, we can't believe in both. Uh, so we should believe whichever has the stronger and disbelieve whichever has the weaker. And so what, what follows from lines one through four is that between a miracle and the law of nature, let's say if we've got to we can choose one of these, right? We should believe whichever has the stronger evidence and disbelieve whichever has the weaker. Well, you can imagine what the next premise is going to say, right? The evidence for the law of nature is always stronger than the evidence for the miracle. Right? The evidence we have for the law of nature is always stronger he wants to say, then the evidence we have for the miracle. And so we should always believe in the law of nature and disbelieve in the miracle. Right? The idea is we're always going to have better evidence right, to believe in the law of nature than we do to believe in the miracle. We can't believe in both. And so we can never really reasonably believe in a miracle. Right? Not saying it's impossible, right? but we can never reasonably believe in it. Okay. Well, I think this argument has a problem with it, a mistake. I think it's an interesting argument. I hope you can feel you feel its force, but I think it's got a mistake. I, I suppose uh, someone who wanted to object to this argument, there, there are two premises that might be the most likely targets. Um, one might try to contest this sixth uh, premise, right? The evidence for the law of nature is always stronger than the evidence for the miracle. Maybe someone wants to say, in some cases, the evidence for the miracle is stronger. Um, but I don't think one needs to do that, uh, because I think where this uh, argument goes seriously wrong is in the first premise, in, in the contention that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. Okay. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about why I think uh, goes wrong there. That's an intense stare from John Stuart Mill. He says some things in this passage which is relevant to what I'm about to say, but I'm not going to read through the passage. Okay? I'm just going to go uh, straight to, uh, to the explanation. Well, if we, let's think a little bit about a, a law of nature um, and what it does. So a law of nature, uh, I take it, tells us what effects follow from a natural cause, a natural cause X, in a given set of conditions C? Right? A law of nature, we call it L, if you want, right? A law of nature L tells us what effects follow from a natural cause X in a given set of conditions C. So for example, it tells us that flames applied to wood when the wood is dry under those conditions, right, will ignite the wood. Okay. What if we change the conditions? If we change the conditions, instead say the wood is wet, right? Well, in that case, it's no violation of the law that the wood does not ignite. Since condition C, which specified that law, right? Flames ignite wood when wood is dry. Those conditions don't hold. And so the law doesn't really apply in this case. And so the fact that wood doesn't ignite in different conditions, better conditions when it's wet, is not a violation of the law that we were just talking about, is it? The law tells us what happens in, in condition C, particular condition C, not what happens in some other set of conditions. Well, I think this, this point applies to the case of miracles as well. If we add that God is intervening to perform a miracle, does anyone recognize this scene? Please. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, right? With the angel that looks like a, a son of God or something like this. That's the book of Daniel. I, uh, anyway, they're in this fiery furnace and the flames aren't burning them. Anyway, but we're talking about wood. Anyway, I don't Similarly, right? If, if we add, if we add that God is intervening to perform a miracle, that there's no violation of a law of nature because the law of nature tells us what happens in conditions that don't include God's intervention. Just like it's no violation that the Wet wood, no violation of the law that, that flames ignite wood when it's dry, that they don't ignite wood when it's wet, right? It's no violation in general of any law of nature, right? Uh, when the conditions in place are ones where God is intervening, if you will, right? Because under those conditions, right, the, the law doesn't apply, doesn't speak to those conditions. The conditions in which laws of nature apply are conditions uh, in which uh, God is not intervening. Um, A contemporary philosopher uh, writing on this puts it this way. Miracles are occurrences having causes about which laws of nature are simply silent. The laws are true, but simply don't speak to the events caused by divine interventions. The laws are true, but they don't speak to the to the miraculous event. So I want to reject premise one of that of that argument, uh, the conflict argument. There's no violation. Miracles are not violations of any law of nature. The truth of a miracle's having occurred does not imply the falsehood of any law of nature. There's no violation, there's no conflict. Believing the miracle doesn't require us to believe that any law of nature is violated or false. And so we can continue to believe in laws of nature on the basis of the evidence we have for them, while also believing that miracles occur on the basis of the evidence that we have for them. This speaking of Dominicans, um, this is this is photo is of uh, a, a Dominican priest uh, who's um, a biologist. There he is in, in his lab with his lab coat on and his collar, Father Nicanor Nicanor Austriaco. He gives he I talk sometimes, um, and uh, I mean he's a good example and not by any stretch the only one. Right? He believes in laws of nature. He believes in miracles. And how could someone believe that reason we believe that, right? Because there's no, there's no conflict between the two. You can believe in laws of nature based on the evidence you have for them. If you think you've got evidence to believe in miracles, you can believe in miracles on the basis of the evidence that you have for them as well. What sort of evidence might that be? Well, it would be evidence, as, as we've said, for an event that doesn't seem to have a a natural explanation. It doesn't seem to have a natural cause, right? You need to know enough about what natural causes produce uh, uh, to recognize, right, an event as uh, as not seemingly not anyway, very probably not having a natural cause, right? And and why would you think there was such an event? Well, it might be based on observation, your own observation, or it might be based on testimony, what others have said. In, in general, right, um, we, we ought to believe things are as the way they seem to be, the way they appear to be, unless we have some reason to think that we are mistaken. If you, if you denied that, then you would have to basically embrace a kind of radical skepticism where you couldn't believe anything, right? If you didn't give the benefit of the doubt to the to believing the way things seemed to you, unless you had some reason to think that you were you were mistaken in the case. And in, in general, principle of testimony, we ought to believe what others report to have observed. 
unless we have evidence of deceit or delusion on their part. Um, think about how much of what you know is really something that you uh, believe on the basis of testimony. It's because of what you've learned or what others have said. Right? There's a war going on in Europe. How do you know that? That all of you think you know that, right? You know that on the basis of testimony, right? Um, I take it you don't have, you know, you don't have firsthand uh, witness accounts of it. Most of what you read about and learn in, in textbooks and so forth, in the newspapers and so forth, it's all about testimony. Um, think about how well you would do on any test that you ever have to take, right? If you were never allowed to rely on knowledge and testimony on those tests, not very well, I don't think, right? Um, now, Hume has some reasons for thinking that, Hume tries to give reasons for thinking that you could never believe anything on the basis of, believe a miracle on the basis of testimony uh, because he thinks it's always going to be more probable uh, he thinks it's always going to be more probable that the testimony is false than that the miracle actually occurred and he thinks that it's always more probable that the testimony is false than that the miracle has actually occurred you should always side against the testimony for a miracle right but it, I mean it's not and I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this a little short, although we could talk about it some more in the Q&A. It's not really clear um, why he thinks uh, that. Um, I think what he's arguing is a little more obscure in this case. He, he asked, he, he asked, what's more probable that the reported event occurred or that the testimony is false? And we have to ask, what does he mean by probable here? And taking into consideration points from his broader philosophy, he seems to mean something like, what typically happens in situations of this sort? What typically happens in situations of this sort is, is more probable. Does anybody know what this is? Does 28-3 mean any football fans? 28-3 mean anything to you? I, I grew up a Falcons fan. Super Bowl 51, the Falcons are up 28-3, midway through the third quarter. Um, at one point in the fourth quarter, I think later ESPN was saying the Falcons' uh, probability of, of winning uh, that game was something like 99.6%. Um, I, I, I don't tend to count my chickens before they hatch, but I was pretty confident. <laughs> don't quite know what hit, hit me, right? Uh, when, when the Patriots stormed back and won that Super Bowl. Um, it's not always the case that what typically happens in a given situation, right? is or that we should never believe that something happens other than what typically happens in a given situation, right? And, and Hume seems to be su suggesting that. Um, or at least one reading of it. It's, it's hard to read exactly how the argument is supposed to go. Um, it's not always the case that we should disbelieve things outside the norm or things that are unusual. Um, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but you know, imagine somebody, it's really unusual, uh, it's an unusual day like for, for anybody if they win a lottery, especially a person who doesn't even buy a lottery tickets, right? Imagine someone who doesn't buy a lottery ticket, picks it up, picks up a lottery ticket from the street, and it turns out to be to win the jackpot, right? And they, they tell somebody about, about what happened, right? Now, you might have some friends where you might think that they're pulling your leg or first, you know, but it'd be unreasonable not to accept the testimony at a certain point, right, of, of such a thing. Unusual things happen. Um, so we can't exactly rule out uh, belief in testimony for unusual things. Uh, things that are that aren't typical. Um, well, 
I, I want to leave some time for Q and A, and so I want to I want to stop uh, here. But just to summarize, we we looked at at two sorts of objections for thinking uh, that it can't be reasonable to believe in miracles. Set set of objections really that that miracles are impossible, and of course if they're impossible, you couldn't reasonably believe. And then some objections, and one we focused on in particular, that whether they're, even if they are possible, you can never actually be justified. You can never have evidence for believing that a particular miracle occurred because it, it, that evidence would always be pitted against your evidence for a law of nature which it violates. Right? In neither of these cases does it seem to me that we have decisive reasons for thinking, or even very good reasons for thinking that it couldn't be reasonable to believe in a miracle. Right? Um, it seems it could be reasonable to believe in a miracle if you have testimony that is uh, testimony that is of uh, of reliable witnesses. We're going to be uh, celebrating the foundational miracle of Christianity here in, in a few days, the, the resurrection. Um, what sort of testimony do we have for that? Um, well, the disciples report having seen Jesus in the flesh after his death. And they report that Jesus' tomb was found empty. And the, the disciples were, were persecuted for this testimony, but stood by it at great cost to themselves. Are they reliable? <laughs> Is it reliable testimony? Um, were they deceived? Were they, were they deceiving us, right? Deceivers are usually deceiving for the sake of some benefit that they accrued from it, right? In the case of the disciples, they didn't seem to get a whole lot out of it other than, than persecution, suffering, and death. Maybe the disciples were deceived, right? They were, they, they were seeing things. They were delu delusional. But then again, um, there was an easy way to check that. Right, which is um, go to the tomb. The tomb, there was no body in the tomb, right? And so the normal checks that you would check it, like you would do it, some, if you know you thought you had seen somebody come back to life from the dead, you know, you probably want to check that out, right? Just make sure you weren't saying things. The, the, there, there were checks there, right? Um, so. I, I'm one, and, and many have thought that the testimony uh, to the resurrection of Jesus, and there isn't that we don't have as, as, uh, as far as I know any testimony, counter testimony, testimony against the resurrection of Jesus. People who are saying, you, you know, oh, but we did see Jesus' body, you know, right, in, in the tomb or somewhere else. Um, it's credible, it seems credible. Um, and it seems like there are that the objections to belief in it are often objections not really about the credibility of this testimony, but about the possibility of miracles or worries that miracles violate laws of nature. And once you can remove those, uh, then it opens up the possibility of, of taking your testimony right on its own terms at face value. And that's what I would suggest we do. All right, so I'll close it with that. And, uh, and see what Thank you. Yes, sorry. Okay. So it might be irrelevant, but you're talking about the two arguments and with the conflict of the law of nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, you went after the first. I was kind of surprised you didn't go after the second. Because you were talking earlier and you're talking about how Thomas was talking and uh, had said that God could act. Outside yeah. causes. So why would it prove a false if a miracle is by definition something that acts outside of the laws of nature? So you're looking at that first argument there uh, on the handout and thinking maybe you, uh, it would be good to go after premise two rather than one. Why isn't that a good idea? And I'm just following, I'm just making sure I understand your yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think. Um, I'm trying to go with what I take Hume to mean by violation of law of nature. And the only way Hume's argument is, seems to me makes any sense is if we take him to mean by violation of law of nature that 
a miracle having happened would actually show that the law of nature is false. Because what only in that case really would the evidence for the law of nature count as evidence against the miracle. He wants to, he seems to want to say that the evidence for the law of nature counts against the miracle. And the only way that it seems to do that is if the law of nature uh, imply, or the miracle implies the falsehood of the law of nature. Right. So, uh, I wonder if we can marker around here. So is he an atheist? You? Uh, yeah. I thought so. I think so. So anyway, I mean, in some ways, so I, when, when Thomas, uh, when, when Aquinas is talking about uh, miracles as being something God does outside the order of nature, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think we necessarily want to read that as violating laws of nature. Okay? So I think he would reject premise one. But even if we, but, he, but he, I, I certainly don't think he thinks, Thomas thinks, that God's acting outside the order of nature means that any law, of, it means that any law of nature is false because he can do that. I think he would think that the laws of nature tell us the way natural causes operate. And though that's true, all that's true, it's just that sometimes God does things uh, by himself, as it were, without the natural causes. Okay. Hopefully that's, that helps. Yeah. Yes? What uh, miracles do you find the most convincing? Um, well, I mean, I find the you know, testimony to something like the resurrection to be convincing, pretty convincing testimony. Because I think uh, the, the conditions under which that testimony is made, is reported to us, are not conditions under which testimony is, is typically false, it seems to me. Um, and it's hard to explain very well the origin of the church apart from the resurrection. None of this is, you know, uh, original, not original points. Right. Um, uh, now, in terms of contemporary miracles, reports of them, right, I, I find them, I find them convincing in cases where it seems pretty clear that they're isn't a natural explanation, or it's, you know, it seems very, doubt, very doubtful that there's a natural explanation, and the, the witnesses seem to be reliable. Right? Um, there's, no, there's no reason to think that they're, you know, blind. They're not, they don't have, yeah, they're, they're, they're sound mind. Um, so they're, they're reports of these miracles. You know, you hear stories, they're, they're, they're accounts of, of healing miracles of various sorts that I find. I find convincing. Yeah. Um, there, there are cases where I think it's hard to know whether, for sure, whether a particular event is miraculous or not. Because it's, it can be hard sometimes to know whether there might have been a natural cause. I, I mean, I, I have a case like this in my own life, actually, that I, I think is probably a, a, a miracle. But I've always I've, been, I've hesitated sometimes to say uh, that it was, be, you know, I, because I don't want people. I don't absolutely know for sure that there is no was no natural explanation of the event, and I, I mean, in a way, it doesn't. I, I don't want people to like rest their belief on God, on God on, on that. I mean, there 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 are lots of reasons to believe in God's existence apart from this miraculous thing that might have happened. To, and I certainly don't want to, you know, yeah, sort of mis mislead or manipulate people in any way. But yeah, I had a case where I, I had lost my voice. Uh, I lost my voice for about four years, and then I had, a, and then it, it returned uh, in a in a situation where somebody, uh, a former student of mine who's a priest, 
who has uh, a healing ministry, seems to have the charism of healing, prayed over me, and I, um, not immediately, but I woke up to this vivid dream where I'm saying, God could heal my voice if he wanted. I woke up, my, voice, my throat felt different, and I started talking pretty much normally, like I hadn't been for in previous four years. Um, now, could that have had some sort of natural, you know, I mean, there can be issues that are voice related problems that are sort of psychosomatic. I mean, yeah, I don't, I can't say 100% sure that, the, that, this, that there wasn't an actual cause. I, I doubt, I, I doubt that it was an actual, uh, that there was a natural cause, a natural explanation. So I think it was probably miraculous. Um, I'm pretty dang sure, I mean, I've got, we've got <laughs> lots of people knew about the situation with my voice because I was walk, you know, walking around unable to talk for four years basically and, and uh, you know, um, lots of doctor bills to account to, to as evidence for that and lots of, you know, evidence of, of, that, of the change that happened. So, um, yeah. Um, but, but there are cases like this where, and I think medical cases can be like this sometimes where, where, and that's, you know, where, where it can be hard to know in some cases, could, could there be a natural explanation for it? Or is it miraculous? I think, you know, there's probably a spectrum there of probabilities in terms of our levels of credibility there. But certainly um, there seem to be cases that are pretty, seems pretty doubtful that there's a natural explanation. And this stuff happens not infrequently in the modern you know, world by people who use, you know, radios and cell phones. And, I was just going to ask, do you think, I know we've talked a lot about 18th century um, people with this, but is part of the issue with people believing in miracles the fact that it's kind of tossed around in situations where there are laws of nature present? Yeah. Like, yeah. People refer to childbirth as a miracle, and yeah. while it is, yes. I guess, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that that's part of the reason why, you know, these surveys, it's a little hard, you know, to know what they mean by miracle, yeah. Because, um, yeah, childbirth. I mean, when people say it's a it's a miracle, I mean, you know what they're getting at, but right. it's not the same sense of miracle as in no no natural cause or explanation. Sure. Do you um, think that causes like strength? It, it could. It, it could. You know, it may it may be um, maybe if, if if it's used too loosely, right? That it can it can create doubts. You know, um, so. Yeah, I think we want to be careful about it, about it, which is not to say we can't ever say it's a miracle, you know, oh, you know, what a miracle that child is uh, born, but uh, just that when we're, when we're in context where we need to be careful that we are careful about it. Yeah. Yes? Um, going back to, um, who was the first guy that you talked about that's uh, atheist project? Uh, Dawkins? Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's like more recent, and we've had more recent like miracles of like um, Eucharistic yeah. miracles. Yeah. Um, and I know that the church has like a bunch of, um, I don't know, procedures in order to like make yeah. sure that a miracle is a miracle. Yes. Like healing miracles and stuff like that, but yeah. there's like no other explanation. Yeah. Than, like, yeah. Like, like, I just don't understand yeah. how. He yeah. think that it's just for children when there's actually yeah. like scientific evidence that there's right. yeah. change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's very committed to a, a an atheistic naturalistic worldview. So, I I think miracles are 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 not going to shake him off of that. Probably. Do you for, know his um, argument against? Like stuff like that, where there is yeah. evidence. Yeah, I, I, I don't specifically, other than that, I think he, I think he would something along the lines of the sorts of things that Hume gives that we look at, right? I think he, you know, he thinks it's a violation of of laws of nature, or a violation of, of of what we know through science, right? So it's just and, a proof. And apart from that, I think he thinks that it's a part. It's, I think he thinks it's a well, I think he thinks he probably thinks that that he doesn't believe that the witnesses are credible, right? But part of the reason he doesn't believe the witnesses are credible was because he's got a worldview that doesn't 
allow him to be open to their credibility. He's got to assume from the outset that, that they're, they're wrong about in this report because miracles can't happen because, you know, either because he thinks God doesn't exist or because he thinks that um, any miracle would violate a law of nature, which we have greater evidence for or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's what's behind it, you know. I mean, I think for someone who is very convinced, uh, sort of in a, an atheistic worldview, right, it's much more difficult to accept testimony about miracles than someone who is, b believes God exists um, or even is sort of agnostic, but might be, you know, um, because um, you need God's existence almost by definition to have 